The Book of Numbers gets overlooked, partly because it has a really boring name. Which is a shame. In the Hebrew tradition, the book's name is Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And it's an epic travelogue about Israel's journey through the desert on their way to the land promised to Abraham. Now, this pilgrimage should only take about two weeks on foot. But instead, it takes them about 40 years. That's crazy. It's practically half of someone's lifetime. Yeah, it's a very long camping trip with lots of interesting stories. But let's remember, it's most helpful to back up and start with how this book is designed. Right. So the book is broken up into five sections. There are three wilderness locations broken up by two road trips that link all the pieces together. The first wilderness section is Mount Sinai, right here on the map. And then in the second section, they travel to a region called Paran. A whole bunch of things happen here in the wilderness of Paran. And then in this fourth section is Israel's road trip to Moab. The book ends with a large section in the wilderness of Moab, right across the Jordan River from the Promised Land. Now, through all of these sections, the storyline just flows like a gripping dramatic movie. Everything starts great, but then the trip goes horribly wrong, and it all ends with the final redemptive moment, the surprising act of God's grace. So let's jump into this story. It all begins at the wilderness at Mount Sinai, and we've become really familiar with this mountain. Yeah, if you remember, Israel came here after Egypt, and they formed a covenant with God here, got the Ten Commandments here, built the tabernacle here, and they've been at this mountain for one full year. And now they take a census to number the people as they prepare to leave. Right, and they're given these instructions for how to organize all those people in the camp. God's presence in the tabernacle, and then the tribe of Levi and the priests around it, and then the rest of the tribes around them. And this pattern, it's this visual symbol for how God's holiness is at the center of their existence as a people. And they're told that when the cloud of God's presence moves, they're to pack up and travel with it. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant is carried by the Levites out in front, and then the tribe of Judah, and on and on. And this order is also a symbol for how God's holy presence is their leader and guide through the wilderness. We begin the second section of the book with enthusiasm as they leave Mount Sinai and travel up to Paran. God's with them. Everything's organized. This is going to be great. But it's not great. After just three days on the road, the people are complaining about their hunger and thirst. And then even Moses' brother and sister start bad-mouthing him in front of all the people. Not a great start. But now we're into the third section, the wilderness of Paran. This is where they send the 12 spies to scout out the promised land. Two of those spies come back and they're really optimistic. But the other 10 are freaked out and they don't trust God and they go around saying, we're going to get annihilated in there. And so they start a mutiny and they try to appoint a new leader who's going to take all the people back to Egypt. And so basically they are refusing to go into the promised land and God honors their choice. He says that this generation is going to wander for 40 years and die in the wilderness and only their kids will get to enter the promised land. You know, this story here gets brought up many times in the Bible by different authors. Yeah, and and it always serves as a reminder that while God remains faithful to his people and his promises, he will honor their choices. He'll, He'll let them waste their whole lives if they choose to live in rebellion. Okay, so the trip's been a disaster so far. And it gets worse here in this fourth section as they're traveling to Moab. Even Moses has a moment of rebellion and is disqualified from entering the promised land. Then there's another rebellion among the people. It results in this snake attack. 
And what makes all these rebellions even worse is that every step of the way, God has been providing. He's been offering forgiveness. He's been giving them food and water and this crazy stuff called manna. Yeah, what is that stuff? Yeah, no, no idea. But in spite of all this, they keep complaining, and they say that they wish they had died in slavery in Egypt. If I was God, I would just give up on these guys. You would think. But that's what makes this story in the final section so surprising. Israel has just arrived in Moab, and the king of Moab, he's freaked out that this huge group of people is traveling through his land. So he hires this pagan sorcerer named Balaam to pronounce curses on them. This guy means business. Yeah, and so Balaam, he says, okay, I'm going to pray to the Hebrew god, and let's see what happens. And three different times he attempts to curse them, but each time he finds that he can utter only blessing. Most surprising is the last blessing, where he prophesies that out of Israel will rise a victorious king. And this king is somehow going to be connected to God's promise to Abraham to bless all nations through this family. So here's Israel rebelling down in the camp, totally unaware that up in the hills, God is protecting and even blessing them. The book ends here in Moab. Israel's getting ready to go into the promised land. They count up everyone again, just like at the beginning. They're leaving the old generation behind, including Moses. But before they leave Moses, he gives them his last words of warning and wisdom. And that speech is what the next book, Deuteronomy, is all about. Good morning. My name is Shannon Jamal Hallamans, and I am the pastor of worship at Oakdale Park Church, just a mile away from Sherman Street. I am so grateful for the opportunity to be here with you this morning and to delve into God's word together. As Pastor Jen said last week, the context of this morning's passage, like that from Leviticus, is removed from our present context by layers of distance. But as we wade in, I think you'll come to see that the distance between the circumstances in which the children of Israel found themselves in the desert living on manna and the circumstances in which we find ourselves in this present moment, isolated physically, connecting virtually, while they differ in time and space, are not all that far from each other. Our passage in Numbers began by saying, the rabble with them began to crave other food. The phrase, the rabble with them, is referring to the people who joined the Israelites as they journeyed from Egypt to the land of Israel. Now, it might be easy to point fingers here and say that the rabble or those people were obviously the problem. But notice that God doesn't take issue with the cravings of the rabble. God takes issue here with the children of Israel. We hear that in the same sentence when we read, Again, the Israelites started wailing. Complaining was becoming a pattern for Israel. They point to the variety of food that they had in Egypt. Remember the salad, the fruit, the baba ganoush. They were entertaining themselves with memories of Egypt, memories that neglected to reflect on the big picture and instead just focused on the tabletops. And they fell into the trap of thinking that what they needed was more than what God was providing for them, that God was selling them short. They remembered how good the food was in Egypt, but they forgot the provision of God. Note that while all of this is going on, in the verses that we skipped over this morning, Moses is experiencing his own crisis. He's not good at delegating, and he is bringing his own complaints to God, complaints about the load he's carrying, 
complaints about how ungrateful the children of Israel are, complaints about just how difficult his job is. Moses was trying to do too much, and he was doing a lousy job at it, at leading the people through this time of crisis. Moses likely wasn't communicating with them well or listening to them well, and as a result, they felt like they had no say in what was happening to them. They were frustrated. And if we listened to their pleas, I think we would say that they had pretty much a right to be. So in their angst, they readily admitted, all we see is manna. And they wondered aloud and loudly, is this it? Is this what we left Egypt for? Ultimately, the source of their complaints was not the manna, but how powerless they felt, like there was nothing they could do to change their circumstances. Their time in the desert had killed their appetites. They felt vulnerable. They were mad. They were filled with anxiety and with little trust that the days ahead were going to be any better. This is how they ended up entertaining romanticized images of Egypt in their mind. As the text reads, they rejected the Lord who was among them. The children of Israel couldn't recognize that God was at work among them because their circumstances had eclipsed their vision of God. But we don't know what that's like, right? We don't know what it's like to have our world turned upside down, to have to learn a new way to live, to feel isolated, to complain, to feel anxious, to lose our appetites. Well, maybe we do know what that's like. Living in the time of COVID-19 has revealed so much for me. I've come to see just how much I rely upon seeing people upon being in their presence, absorbing their energy through laughter, through worshiping together. And I've come to know what it's like for people like my grandparents, people who talk about the good old days. When I find myself saying things like, remember when we could walk into a store without a face covering? Or remember when we went and saw movies in the theater? Remember what it felt like to have people over to our house? Those were the days. But memory can play tricks on us because memory can be selective. Like when my children were small and my son was obsessed with turning his sister, sister's Barbie dolls into guns and pretending to shoot her with them. My mom would say, oh, you and your siblings never did anything violent like that. I think that was her selective memory. And what we heard in this morning's text was that memories can be used for our benefit or for our detriment. We can remember the stories of what God has done in our lives and we can share them. Or we can remember the times when we felt like God wasn't there. Times when we needed God and we felt like God didn't show up for us. Deanna Smith reminded me of a song by Sarah Groves when she asked me to preach on this text. The song is called Painting Pictures of Egypt. And in it, Grove sings about what it's like to look at the past through rose-colored glasses, 
overlooking the things we don't want to see and honing in, focusing on those things that we do. There's this line in the song that I think captures this idea well. Grove sings, I was dying for some freedom, but now I hesitate to go. I am caught between the promise and the things I know. What is familiar becomes comforting to the point that when God calls us to experience something better, something more, we can reject it in favor of dwelling in the familiar. Like Israel, we can become so preoccupied with images of our own rendering that we neglect to recognize the ways that God is moving among us. Like Israel, we can long for what is familiar instead of what is better. And like Israel, we can lose our appetites for God's kingdom, for God's justice, for God's righteousness, because our vision has become so eclipsed by our present circumstances that we fail to feel God's presence among us. Jesus pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount that our love for God and the power of God at work in our lives should be most evident when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. Not the good days, the bad days, because that, frankly, is what sets us apart as God's people. Not how we treat those people who are nice to us, but how we treat those people who are terrible to us. Not how we live when things are going really well, but how we live when things aren't. And the good news this morning is that that is precisely how God worked for Israel. God heard them because whether they could recognize it or not, God was still moving among them and readying himself to reply to their cries for help. We read in verse 18 that God asked Israel to consecrate themselves, to prepare themselves for God's response to their cries. And boy, is he going to respond to them. God says to them, Now I, the Lord, will give you meat, and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five or ten or twenty, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Yikes. First, that must have terrified them. I get terrified just reading that. Second, God sort of comes off like a jerk here. One commentator I read wrote, God judges complaining Israel with a blessing or blesses them with a judgment. It's hard to tell. But no worries. God is definitely not a jerk here. God is a loving parent. And like a parent who patiently listens to the complaints of their child, until they can respond with intentionality and with care. God does just that. God provides meat for Israel. And we don't read it here, but later in Numbers, we see that God gives them water and meat in the form of quail, showing us that even in the wilderness, God can and does provide. God provides Moses with a system to delegate leadership responsibilities among the people. And God gives Israel meat. Does God get angry with Israel? Yes. 
Does God wield immense power to harm Israel in that anger? No. God can and does provide. And while God is angry at Israel for their insolence, God does not reject them. God does not banish them from God's presence. God shows love for them by sticking with them, by answering their prayers, by continuing to move among them. Did Israel get what they want exactly the way they wanted it? No. But did Israel get what they needed and in the process receive a reminder of just how powerful and strong their God is and just how powerful and strong God's love is for them? Yes, most certainly. God cannot be managed or manipulated or contained. I can't help recall that part in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Mr. Beaver is describing Aslan to a young Lucy. Those of you who are familiar with the book and with that character will recall that Aslan is a lion and a sort of representation of God in the story. When Lucy hears that Aslan is a lion, she asks, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. That's what we see in this morning's text. A God who hears the cries of the people. A God who lives among the people. And a God who responds to their cries for help with justice, with mercy, and with grace. When we find ourselves in the wilderness, God is among us. When we cry out, God hears us. When we find ourselves in need, God responds to us. As we read in those images that God paints for us in other parts of the Bible, in the Torah, God's arm is not too short to save. And God's nose is long, which is an image of God's patience for us. There's a lot of judgment in the book of Numbers. But as those who know the fullness of God revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, fully human and fully divine, we don't need to fear that judgment. Justice has been served. Jesus was crucified, so we never have to be. In the video that we watched about the book of Numbers just before this message, the narrator pointed out that the people in the book of Numbers see that God's justice is transformed into a source of life that brings healing to people. God is faithful, but God does not force us to be faithful in response. God allows us to experience the consequences of our decisions, just like any good parent, to learn from them. Because like Israel, God has freed us. God has delivered us. And part of that freedom is the freedom to make mistakes. And also the freedom to choose God above all else. And because of this, we have the freedom to give God praise. As we heard in this passage and in Psalm 75, God is near. When we are attentive to that nearness, 
There are some pretty incredible stories that we can share about what God is doing in our lives. Stories that we can share with others so that they might come to recognize Christ as their Savior, the way that we know Christ. And we can rest assured because God judges with equity and with mercy and with grace. The words of Psalm 75 verse 3 still ring true. When the earth and all its people quake. It is God who holds its pillars firm. In July, uh, Julie Veneman, one of my sisters in Christ at Oakdale Park Church, shared her testimony in our worship. Five weeks later, we said goodbye to Julie as her body was laid to rest after a battle with cancer. But Julie's testimony the story of what God had done in her life was not laid to rest. I want to share a little bit with you of what Julie said that day. She said, By the age of 20, I was fatherless. At 23, I became semi-paralyzed in a car accident. And by 27, my mother had died too. I had cancer at 44 and at 66. My husband, Ryan, also had cancer twice. What a sight we were. We looked like people who had been forgotten by their God. But looks aren't everything. We were confident that our God had called us as his people. We truly lived by faith and not by sight, because what a sight we were. We believed that our God had redeemed us and was turning all of our sorrows and misfortunes to our good. We held his promise that he would le never leave us and never forsake us, and with each crisis that we went through, what faith could show us over and over again of God's presence and God's presence with us became our true sight. Five years ago, when I was really struggling as a parent, I felt pretty alone. There weren't many people that I could talk to who would just listen without trying to fix things for me. But that's what I needed, was someone to listen, someone to offer some understanding and some encouragement. And Julie did that for me. We'd gone to church together for 20 years and were never particularly close until that moment when I found myself wandering in a desert, so to speak. Julie was there. She listened to me. She prayed with me. She reminded me who I am and who God is. Through Julie, God was able to help me resist despair, resist entertaining images of the good old days in my mind, and turn my focus back to God's strong and loving presence in my life. Because Julie recognized the ways that God is at work and trusted in God's provision and was able to share that with me. As we leave this virtual space of worship today, I want to leave you with these three things. First, remember the truth about who you are and whose you are. You belong to God. God has called you by name. You are their child. Second, I want to encourage you to take a step back. Try to see the big picture, to recognize what God is doing to see the movements in your life where God has been there in the ups and in the downs, that you may come to recognize God's purposes, to see your place in them, 
to remember that God is always near. And finally, seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness because God is just and God will provide. Never lose your appetite for that provision. Thirst for it and you will be filled. Let us pray. Mighty God, we come to you this morning grateful because we know that both you are strong and all-powerful and mighty, and you are also loving and concerned and caring for our every need. Lord, our circumstances can overwhelm us. They can block our vision of you. They can make us feel like we're alone. They can make us feel like we're not being provided for. God, clear our vision. Help us to focus our eyes on you, on the ways that you're moving, the ways that you're providing, the ways that you are seeing fit, that every one of our needs is met. Maybe not in the way that we would have chosen God, but in the way that is for our good and for the flourishing of your people. God, we love you and we trust you, and we're so thankful for the gifts that you've given us in this church in your word, in prayer, in all the ways that we can be in relationship with you, God. Help us not to take them for granted. And we pray all of this in the powerful name of our only Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.